0: We're looking at James, chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 to 18, and if you have your pew Bible there, that's page 8, 9, 7 in your pew Bible. The Epistle of James, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, James, a bondservant of a god and of the Lord Jesus Christ, the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings, my brethren. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation because of the flower of the field he'll pass away. But no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls and his beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be the kind of firstfruits of his creatures. May the Lord add his blessing. To the reading and the hearing of this His most blessed Word, even for our hearts this morning, as bow our heads and hearts for prayer. <clears throat> Father, we come before you once again. We thank you. We can come to that throne of grace, that throne of mercy, that throne where you can justify the sinner. We come, Father, to praise you. We come, Father, to understand that we're but children, for such is the kingdom of God. And so, Father, we come before you as your little children, knowing that you are the one who teaches us, you are the one who guides us and instructs us, you're the one who guards us and watches over us in every way, that we might truly be your children in such a way that we might tell others this is the way Walk ye in it. And so we come before you this morning, Father, rejoicing, especially this season of the year in our culture, whereby we celebrate your first coming. You who came into the world to seek and save sinners has found us and brought us to yourself. And so as we come as your little children, we come rejoicing, praising your holy name, knowing that we are yours, bought with that precious blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from every sin And therefore, we are related to you, Father, through blood. And so we come as your children. Use us in this worship hour, Lord. Touch us with your truth. Teach us your ways. Guide us by your word. Help our pastor to make it clear. Feed us, Father, that manna from heaven that helps us grow in grace and in knowledge of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we would pray for that kind of growth this morning to be part of our natures, our hearts, that we might go into this new week to glorify you wherever you placed us. Everyone in his own little ways, everyone in his own place, everyone where you have put us. Let us glorify you by word or by deed. Help us, Lord to be light shining in dark places. Bless our church family, Father. Bless our leadership, bless our pastor, bless our deacons, bless those who are ruling over us in such a way that we might have that kind of wisdom whereby we can guide our church family into all the graces that God has for us as you build up your church in this place. And so we give you praise. Bless each one of our church family, each member, each adherent, each one is visiting, each one, Father. Bless us all as we come together as that part of the body of Christ that is known as the universal church, but is local in scope. And so we thank you, Father, that we come together in this one place whereby we might glorify you in such a way this community might find Jesus as their Savior. Bless our sick, Father. Bless those who aren't with us today. Bless those who are unwell. Bless those who are touched by the world and could fall away so easily. Bless them, eh, Father. And call each one of us into your presence even now and touch us as we remember our church family, our camps that we support, our missionaries that are so important to us. Bless each and every one, Father, and use us even here as missionaries in a foreign land, for our citizenship is in heaven. Watch over us this morning, Father, and help us in every way. And bless our pastor especially, for we pray this in Jesus' matchless name, amen.
1: And The next hymn that we're going to sing We're continuing this morning with James chapter 1, and I'm going to be focusing in on verses 9 to 11. So uh, let me just read those for us again. Let the lowly brother exult in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits." Let's turn to the Lord once more together in prayer. Dear Lord, we do want to thank you and praise you, Lord, for your goodness and your mercy to us. Lord, we deserve death and we deserve hell, but Lord, by your grace, you call us to life. You change us by the power of your Holy Spirit and call us into relationship with you. We thank you, Lord, that we are inheritors of heaven, that we are co-inheritors with Christ, Christ our brother and you our father. So, Lord, we pray that you will help us this morning and every day, Lord, to be thinking about life in these terms, that you'd help us to look at our lives through the lens of the cross. Lord, that you'll help us to be content in whatever circumstances you lead us through, Lord, and to knowing, Lord, that you are good and you are loving and wise, that you are sovereign over our lives. So, Father, I pray this morning that you will quicken hearts. Every person who is assembled here, Lord, together, I pray that you will help us to hear from your word and, Lord, be examining our hearts according to your word and to respond accordingly in the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, that we would find encouragement, that we would find um, admonition and even rebuke where necessary. And, Lord, that we will all come away from this service this morning more like Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. The Puritans... Saw Sunday as the market day for the soul. Just as there's there's a day that each week when 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 some of us will go and get our groceries to feed our spiritual bo- our physical body. So Sunday is the day that we come together to feed our spirits. Sunday is the day that we that we come together to feed on God's word together. So I trust that this morning, that that we would feed on God's word and that we would be nourished in our hearts, that we would grow stronger in the grace that God has given us. But I want to ask you this morning, do you ever feel like life isn't fair? Do you ever struggle financially while, while those around you prosper? Or maybe you study for tests at school while those of your classmates just show up and and do really well on their exams. Or maybe you try to honor God, but get criticized for it, while others around you sin wantonly and get praise. But we who trust in Christ know that one day every wrong is going to be righted, that every injustice will be corrected. So maybe life doesn't seem fair sometimes. But we know that God is just. Every deed is going to be exposed and judged righteously by our perfect judge. Every thought, every intention of our heart will be judged by a holy God. And for those who are trusting in their own righteousness, they'll be crushed under the weight of their sin and they will exit this life To enter into eternal torment. But those who are trusting in Jesus Christ know God's grace. We know that Christ is our righteousness. But we don't just sit there and let let God's love and God's grace pour into us without having an effect. If God's love and God's grace aren't having an effect on you, then you simply are not saved. But for those of us who I said who know and love God, their lives are transformed by his word in the power of his spirit. So we trust in a, in a righteous judge. We trust that that in Jesus Christ the world will be judged. And we saw in in God's word that that is inaugurated with the coming of Christ. That when Jesus came, that he was going to establish righteousness on the earth. Now we saw that begin with the coming of Christ and it will come to full completion. It will come to fulfillment when he returns at the end of the age. But in Luke 3, 4 to 6, where John the Baptist announced the coming of the Messiah, he did it with this declaration, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So John the Baptist here was primarily talking about the way that the coming of Christ would be expedited, that obstacles would be cleared out of the way in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. But the filling of valleys and the leveling of mountains and the straightening of paths also have ethical connotations. They have ethical connotations. Those who are, are proud will be humbled, the lowly will be exalted, and the unrighteous transformed. Transformed. This was a common theme in Luke's gospel. In Luke 14, eleven and eighteen fourteen we read, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And that's really what James is talking about here in this passage before us this morning. See, some of the people that, that James was addressing would have been tempted to think that life wasn't fair. Remember that this letter was written to the dispersion to believing Jews, Christian Jews, who had been scattered outside of the land of Palestine. And for many of them, life was difficult. Many of them were facing severe trials and temptations because they called on the name of Christ. But the primary trial that they were facing was their poverty and oppression from the rich but also in those very church gatherings were also wealthy people. And some of those wealthy people were the very ones who were actually oppressing the poor people in the congregation. So there was a class division within the church, and that is one of the main things that James is writing about in this passage. He is telling people, exhorting them to faithfulness in the midst of their trial. And while for, this, for, for many of us it's easy to identify with the trial that the poor face, we often don't think of wealth as a trial. But wealth, as we'll see this morning, is a serious trial. It is a far more serious and dangerous trial than even poverty is. You see, money is a very important issue in the book of James. James talks about wealth and one's attitude towards wealth in every single chapter in this epistle. But money is also an extremely important issue in the Bible. (coughs) The Bible talks about gold more than 400 times and silver more than 300 times. So why do you think money is such a big deal in the Bible? Because money is a big deal to us. The topic of money hits us where we live. It's close and personal. We need money in this world in order to to pay for the food and shelter and clothing that we need to survive. But it doesn't end there, does it? How we view our money reveals what's going on in our hearts jesus said in matthew 6:21 where your treasure is there your heart will be also so much of who we are or who we think we are is tied to our finances you know many of you know that i lived in the gold coast on the gold coast in australia for 10 years and the gold coast was very much a tourist destination and and it was all about status for most of the populace on the surface, the beautiful people were living the beautiful life. It was all about having a nice house on the water, a flashy car, and a boat, and, and lots of bling on your fingers. But in most cases, it was all owned by the bank. It was actually all a facade. It was all about a superficial status that, that people could, so people could look good and feel good about themselves. But Kelowna really isn't that much different, is it? We also live in a tourist destination, in a place where, where status is the focus. And maybe it's not flashy sports cars, but it's, it's huge SUVs. And it's, it's the nice house on the water. And it's boats in the summertime and skidoos in the wintertime. It's all about having the toys and how people are using their finances to feel good about themselves. So have you ever found yourself envying the person that that drives by in that that massive boat while you're sitting there by the beach? Or maybe envying the person that's got the $10,000 skidoo as they drive by you with, with a big pickup truck? It's easy, easy to go there in your heart. But when that happens, you're revealing a fleshly attitude, a fleshly heart. So some people here in this congregation are struggling financially, struggling to make ends meet. And other people in this congregation are relatively wealthy. But all of us, in this congregation are so much richer than the vast majority of people on this planet we have roofs over our heads we have clo- closets full of clothing we're not hungry when we go to bed at night but whether you're a person of means whether you are not, I pray that this sermon this morning will will have something to speak to your heart. There are principles in this passage that you need to understand and you need to apply regardless of your financial status. But you can relax. I'm not going to spend this whole sermon bashing money. You see, money is not immoral. Money is amoral. Money is neither good nor bad. It's You might have heard it said that money is the root of all evil, but it's actually the love of money that's the root of all evil. It's not having the money so much as your attitude towards it and what you do with it that is either sinful or righteous. Wealth in itself is not sinful, but likewise, poverty in itself is not virtue. Proverbs 30, eight and 9 says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is my Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. The writer of the Proverbs there is saying, I don't want to have too much and I don't want to have too little. Because either way, there's a temptation to be focused on the things of this world. And we'll see that here this morning because James 1, 9-11 presents two main points about finances. The exalting of the lowly and the humbling of the wealthy. As the ESV Study Bible says, both poverty and riches bring enormous pressure on a person to focus on the world rather than on Christ. Thus, James exhorts the poor to boast or glory in their high status in Christ the lowly brother will be exalted or vindicated by God. In contrast, James exhorts the rich to boast in their humiliation by realizing that their wealth is temporary and that it brings them no advantage before God and also by identifying with the poor in their affliction. So I want us to examine our hearts this morning and see which of these applies to us. However, we need to keep in mind that there's likely going to be elements of both sides that we need to, to receive exhortation from, and that we need to receive encouragement from, that we need to guard our hearts against both things and ultimately draw encouragement in Christ and Christ alone. So first of all, the exalting of the lowly. James says in 1.9, In the ESV, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Now the word that is translated lowly here in the ESV or in humble circumstances in the NIV doesn't necessarily mean poor. It's used quite a bit in scripture and it can be used just to refer to to somebody who's just that humble or lowly. But here in context, we see that it actually means specifically of low social status, of low social status. Poverty is in fact what James has in mind because he presents it in opposition to the wealthy in verse 10, or to the rich in verse 10. But I want to say this again. Now, please hear this. Poverty is not virtue in and of itself. There are many poor people around the world who will never be exalted, Now, this may be hard for you to take, but many people around the world live their entire lives in abject poverty and then head into a Christless eternity when they die. This should grieve you. The fact that the majority of the population of the world live in complete and utter poverty and never hear the name of Christ and depart squalor in this life in order to enter eternal punishment in the next should grieve you. Somebody dies on this planet every two seconds. We learned about this when we were looking at the evangelism class there a couple of weeks ago. Every two seconds, somebody dies. One, two, death. Three, four, death. Five, six, death. That should really make you tremble in your heart when you realize that so many people around the world are heading into a Christless eternity. And it's been so encouraging to see the response that many have taken from this church as they're getting serious about evangelism. And so I'm hearing testimony of people sharing the gospel in their school, in their workplace, in the shopping mall, on the street. So we need to ask ourselves, what are we going to do about people who are dying, not knowing Christ? What are you going to do about it? What are you doing about it? But you see, it's not primarily love for the lost that is our motivation for evangelism. Yes, that is a motivation, but our primary motivation for evangelism is love for God. As we shared a couple of weeks ago, when you love God, you will proclaim his name. When you love God, you will talk about him wherever you can. It bubbles up out of your heart, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So like I reminded us a couple of weeks ago, if you're not Doing this, if you're not talking about God, then then check your heart before the Lord and repent. Ask the Lord to change your heart and give him that love for you that will flow out into other people. But our primary motivation for evangelism is not love of the lost. It's love for God. The primary motivation is to get God the glory that is due his name as, as Paris Reed had said in his famous sermon, Ten Shuckles and a Shirt, the reason for evangelism is that Christ loves his lost sheep. He endured the agonies of hell for them. And that Christ deserves the reward of his suffering. He deserves those for whom he died. That is the primary motivation for evangelism. You see, a poor person can be as wretched and as wicked a God-hater as any rich person. But you see, this letter here is not addressed to the poor in general. This letter is written to a specific type of poor person, the poor brothers and sisters, poor Christians. The poor people are being exhorted here, they're Christians and that makes all the difference. They're Christians, they're followers of Jesus Christ. They know and they love the Lord. The poor without Christ, as I just mentioned, have no hope whatsoever. No hope. They have little hope in this life and no hope in the next. But the poor individual who trusts in Christ has every reason to hope because their hope is not in their circumstances. Their hope is in Jesus Christ. Their God is, as we will discuss in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, the Father of lights. Their God is the Father of lights with whom is no variableness nor shadow due to change. The giver of all good things. He is their Father. And that is where their hope lies. So what does James mean here when he says that that these poor people are to boast in their exaltation? The NIV says to take pride in their high position. Now, we don't usually think of pride or boasting as positive things. Usually we see pride and boasting is sinful. But it all depends on what you're boasting in. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.31, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And that's what James is talking about here. It's so easy to get caught up in the thoughts of this life, whether you are poor or whether you are rich. But if you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. This is so true for the the very poor who don't even know where their next meal is coming from. But the poor who know Christ know where their next meal is coming from. It's coming from the Lord. And the Lord provides food for every single man, woman, and child on the planet. Now, I can't prove this but it's my belief that there is enough food on this planet to go around for everybody. But here in the more what we call developed nations, even though we only have 20% of the population, we use 80% of the resources. I spent a fair bit of time when I was in Australia, another so-called developed nation, working in aboriginal communities squalor. I saw squalor. It looked like many third world countries that I visited. And the same is, is true here in many First Nations communities. There's just been, been in the news this week where, where communities in northern Ontario are, are struggling where to, to, as, as, it's, it's so cold. People living in tents. And, and they've had to send warm sleeping bags up there just to help people survive. That's in our own country. But the Lord provides our food. The Lord provides everything that we need. And so our focus needs to be on him. So maybe you're sitting here this morning secure. You, you have a, a, or thinking you're secure in, that, in your paycheck. But your security doesn't come in your paycheck. Something could happen to you tomorrow that could change those circumstances. Or maybe you're here this morning not knowing whether you're going to get another paycheck. But either way, your confidence has to be in the Lord, in the Father of lights who gives every good and every perfect gift. Jesus taught in Matthew 6:30- 30 33, "Do not be anxious saying, "What shall we eat, what shall we eat?" or what shall we drink or what shall we wear?" For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see, the danger for the poor and for the rich is to be discontented in their circumstances. The writer of Hebrews said, keep your life free from money, the love of money, and be content with what you have, for God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So when you're discontent in your circumstances, you're actually slandering the character of God. You are saying in your heart that God will leave me and God will forsake me when he has promised that he would not, fellow Christian. So whether you're rich or whether you're poor, you need to keep your life free from the love of money, either not having it and wanting it or want or having it and wanting more. But I really think that the problem here that James was addressing went far beyond a focus on basic needs. So what does he mean here when he refers to their exaltation, to the, to the exaltation of the lowly? After all, their their social status, the social status of the poor Christians that were addressed here in this letter was not likely to change. They were probably going to die in the same circumstances in which they had lived. But as I mentioned earlier, there, there was a clear class division in these churches. There were rich people and there were poor people, and there was a big divide right down the middle. James deals with this specifically in chapter 2, so I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about it here. But suffice it to say that the wealthy and the congregations were being treated preferentially. That they were being preferred above the poor people. That in those congregations, the wealthy were being exalted and the poor were being cast down. They were being disrespected. Now, we all know what it's like to feel disrespected sometimes, don't we? It's not a lot of fun. It hurts. And the poor people were feeling that out in the world on a daily basis, but they should never, never feel that way in the church. They should never feel that way in Christ. You see, whether we are rich or whether we are poor in this life, We are royalty, we're royalty. We are children of the Most High God. This is our exaltation. That gives us ground to boast, but we're not boasting about anything that is in ourselves or anything that we have done for ourselves. We are boasting in Christ, in His grace, in His love, in His sacrifice, in His life, His righteousness applied to us. All we have to boast about is our sin. Our sin, which was given to Christ, the punishment that we deserve that was put on him. That's what we can boast about. And that whether poor or rich, we need to boast about this. Christian, while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. Christ died for you. Boast about that. You need to filter every circumstance in your life through the lens of the cross. You need to train yourself to do that. It doesn't come naturally. Think about these things as you take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. We need to see that the status that we have in this life is only temporary. This life is a blink, it's over. And then it's life eternal, either life in heaven with God or in eternity separated from God, receiving punishment forever. So we who are trusting in Christ rejoice in whatever circumstances we have. The direct addressees of this letter now know that. They've been dead for almost 2,000 years. Think about that. They have been with God in heaven for almost 2,000 years. Do you think they're rejoicing now? In fact, I would argue that, that they would actually see the trials that they faced in this life, that they would actually call those trials a blessing because they would see the way God sovereignly used every single trial in their life to draw them closer to him and to make them more like the son so they would be thankful for their trials we need to cultivate that attitude in our own hearts we need to think about these from think, things from this perspective remember last week that that we defined wisdom as the ability to see things from God's perspective. That's what we need to train ourselves to do. And when we look at things with a gospel focus, that's exactly what we're doing. We're seeing things from an eternal perspective through the lens of the cross. This applies to all, whether poor or rich. In verse 10 and 11, James then turns his, his attention his attention onto the rich, and he tells them to boast in their humiliation. Now, that's a striking contrast, isn't it? It seems like an oxymoron. We defined that for us last week, two words that don't seemingly go together, boasting in humiliation. So what does that mean, do you think? What does it mean to boast in humiliation? They weren't being humbled in the church they were actually being exalted in the church and that's precisely the problem they also need to filter their thinking through the cross they need to first of all realize that their wealth is temporary and it doesn't earn them any standing with god and they also need to identify with the poor in their affliction just as poverty has its temptations to cause us to focus on this life so does prosperity But I believe the danger of wealth is far, far greater. It has the capacity to lull us to a spiritual sleep, to make us too comfortable with this life, to cause us to forget that we are strangers and pilgrims traveling through this world to the celestial city. In Aesop's fable, The Wind and the Sun, the wind and the sun were disputing about which one was stronger. And then suddenly they saw a traveler coming down the road. And the sun said, I see a way that we can decide our dispute. Whichever of us can cause that traveler to take off his cloak will be the stronger. And so the sun said to the wind, You begin. So the sun hid behind a cloud and let the wind do what the wind was going to do. And the wind blew and blew. The wind blew hard upon the traveler, but but the harder the wind blew, the tighter the traveler gathered his cloak around himself. But then the sun said, okay, now it's my turn. When the sun came out and shone all his glory upon the traveler, the traveler quickly took off his cloak because he was too hot. Spurgeon said that the winds of affliction blow on a Christian's head. He just pulls the cloak around of hev- he pulls the cloak around him of heavenly consolation and girds his religion about him all the tighter for the fury of the storm. But when the sun of prosperity shines on him, the traveler grows warm and full of delight and pleasure. He ungirds his cloak and lays it aside so that the the storms of affliction never could accomplish. The soft hand and the witchery of prosperity has been able to to perform. So are you going through this life warm and comfortable and well-fed? Take heed take heed. Spurgeon also said, it is a dangerous thing to be prosperous. The crucible of adversity is less severe of a trial to the Christian than the refining pot of prosperity. See, wealth is temporary. I quoted earlier in Matthew 6.21, where Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus there warned his listeners to make deposits in heavenly bank accounts. You see, moths and thieves and rust are going to destroy earthly treasures, but heavenly treasure will last for all eternity. Now, of course, I'm not talking here about physically laying up treasure in heaven. I'm not talking about that you'll have a better mansion or something like that if you lay up heavenly treasures. I'm talking about spiritual realities. We need to focus on serving Christ with our finances, not on serving ourselves with our finances. James is also going to talk about this issue in chapter 5, so I'm just going to touch on this quickly. But please turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. <clears throat> In verse 15, Jesus said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, so there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So are you laying up treasure for yourself, and are you not rich towards God. Only you can answer that question. I'm not going to stand here and tell you exactly what you need to do with your finances. But I will tell you the general principle of you need to submit your finances to God. Because everything that you have is not yours. You really don't own anything. You came into this life with a body, and you're not even going to leave with that. There is nothing that we can truly call our own. So are your finances submitted to God? Finally, in our passage here, we see that the rich need to identify with the affliction of the poor. We need to remember that the ground before the cross is level ground. There's no such thing as a second-class Christian. So the same way that the poor need to find their identity in Christ, so also the wealthy need to find their identity in Christ. They need to find ways to use their finances to help the needy. In Luke 16, we read of a similar story, to the one we read just the parable we just saw about the man who who was who tore down his his barns only to build bigger ones. In Luke 15 we read of the rich man and Lazarus. And you know the story, the rich man lived his life in luxury oblivious to the plight of the poor Lazarus who lived in poverty right at his very doorstep. And they both died. And Lazarus went to eternity in heaven and the rich man to eternity in hell. And the rich man's wealth, it prospered him nothing. It didn't give him anything. So the poor are to be an example to the rich in this sense. To the degree that, that poor people have their focus on the things of Christ, they can be an example to the wealthy. Likewise, the wealthy who, who submit everything that they have, their whole lives to Christ, are also an example to the poor. And here in our passage, James refers to the to the rich as, as saying, like the flower of grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, and so its flower falls and the beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. It's very likely that that he had in his mind Matthew 6:28 to 30. Where Jesus said, Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So Solomon, arguably the richest man who ever lived, he was certainly the richest man in his own time. In all of his splendor, in all of his splendor, he had nothing, even on the lilies of the field, on a pretty flower, which just lasts for a short time and then passes away. So if even Solomon did not have beauty in his wealth compared to that of a, of a simple flower, Think about the value of life, of a human life, especially of a human life for which Christ died. Let's turn quickly to Psalm 73. Psalm 73 presents a really similar principle, and I've always seen this sort of focusing more on the the poor person looking at the wealthy person, but there's it, it actually cuts both ways. Asaph writes here in verse 2, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. Sorry, my, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envy of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he goes on to talk about how he, he sees that they have no troubles in this life. They're fat and sleek, he says. They, they have... They just, they're abundant in their wealth. Their eyes swell with fatness and their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. And so the psalmist's feet almost slipped because he was envious of those people. But it cuts both ways, doesn't it? This is a warning here also to the wealthy that judgment is coming. Because when the psalmist Says in verse 16, When I thought to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task. Then I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment and swept away utterly by terrors. Now, this is here true. This is true of the ungodly wealthy. But there's a warning here. There's a warning here for the wealthy in this life. And there's also a warning here to those who envy those who are wealthy in this life. So whichever side of of the fence you're on, whether this, this culture would call you rich or whether this culture would call you poor, remember your identity is in Christ. Your treasure is Christ. But what's the secret? What's the secret to facing poverty or prosperity? It's what I just said. It's understanding that your treasure is not in this life. But it's also relying on Christ in this life. Left to yourself, left to your own strength, wealth, or poverty can destroy you. But the apostle Paul knew the secret. Paul, along with Job and our Lord himself, intimately knew the highs and the lows of this life. And I would argue that many more have been wrecked on the road to prosperity that have been wrecked on the road to ruin. But both roads are covered with wrecks. It's crucial that we know how to survive in the temptations of poverty and the temptations of prosperity, because we will face degrees of both in this life. But Paul revealed the secret to us in Philippians 4:12 and 13, where he says, "I know how to be brought low, and I know how to, abind, how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. So, whether you are here this morning wealthy or whether you're here this morning in financial need, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the riches that we have in Christ. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to walk through this life with an eternal perspective. That you'll help us to treasure Christ above all things in this life. That you'll help us to treasure Christ above our very lives. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to live our lives reflecting on the gospel. Whether we are in poverty or wealth, I pray, Lord, that you help us to live our lives in the light of the gospel. Whether we are satisfied or whether we are hungry, I pray, Lord, that you will help us to live our lives in the light of the gospel. And we ask this all for your glory in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.